For Levchin, writing code, wherever he did it, was a singular source of wonder and insight. For the world, writing code was becoming a path to wealth and influence. We're going to be discussing today the book The Founders by Jimmy Sony. It tells the incredible story of the founding of PayPal and many of the influential characters behind the massive internet payments provider that we know of today. From monopoly-forming mergers to multiple backstabbings and intense competitive dynamics on another platform's home turf, this story truly has it all. We will be weaving between the stories of Confinity and X.com, which were two competitors in this payment space, eventually arriving at the PayPal merger and seeing many of the innovations in the online payment space. The PayPal founders have had an outsized impact on Silicon Valley. Many of them are known as the PayPal mafia, with companies such as Tesla and SpaceX, as we know with Elon Musk, but also YouTube, LinkedIn, Palantir, Yelp, Founders Fund, they all came from these great entrepreneurs. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into the founders. So growing up just 90 miles from the Chernobyl site in Ukraine, Max Levchin had a very wild childhood. As a result of some of the radiation testing efforts that followed the explosion, Levchin's mother was able to get a computer as a food inspector. She was able to use the radiation testing on the computer for food inspection work. And this early exposure to coding proved to be really critical, this turning point in Levshin's life. Early on, he was able to access this computer and consistently code and realize he wanted to go into the software development and technology world. So in the mid-90s, Levshin went to the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and he quickly discovered this passion for engineering. He had had it for a long time, but now felt like he was at the right place. It was there that he got involved with ACM, Association for Computing Machinery, and he was able to meet other similar engineers like Luke Nosek and Scott Bannister, future members of PayPal, and explore these ideas around entrepreneurship. They started a business early on called SponsorNet that was an advertising platform for college students. Another important heroine of our story is Peter Thiel, who we've spoken about in a few episodes now, especially the Power Law episodes. So as a young, ambitious overachiever, Peter Thiel went to Stanford, he got a degree in philosophy, and then he went on to law school, and eventually he landed this really prestigious judgeship job. But Thiel, he wasn't really interested in the conventional legal career, and he ended up leaving the legal field to pursue finance. So it was in the late 90s that Thiel founded Thiel Capital, and this was a hedge fund that was right across from Stanford University. He ended up meeting Ken Howery, and that became his first employee and eventually a key member of the PayPal founding team. So as the internet boom was starting to really pick up steam, Thiel and Howery, they set up shop on Sand Hill Road. This was the epicenter of Silicon Valley's VC scene at the time and still is today. And they began investing in tech startups. 
And one of the startups that they actually invested in, one of their first bets was to Luke Nosek's company, Smart Calendar, who was Max Levchin's early business partner at Urbana Champagne. So Teal and Howery made this investment into Nosek's company, Smart Calendar. Despite their best efforts, Smart Calendar quickly went out of business. It was crushed by 200 competing products. It was a very competitive landscape. And this proved to be an early learning experience for Peter Thiel. Thiel would later cite his Smart Calendar investment as a rich vein of learning, a failure whose lessons, including choosing co-founders wisely and minimizing competition, paved the way for PayPal's success. Thiel's willingness to continue to speak to Nosek in the aftermath of Smart Calendar's demise was a lesson too. It illustrated that losing money in Silicon Valley wasn't like losing money elsewhere. Here, you earn points for effort, not just for an exit. We've spoken about on the Power Law episodes some of Teal's lessons here, where he delivered a talk, Competition is for Losers, and it basically emphasizes this point where you want to minimize competition as much as you can and seek out markets with low competition because the more competition you have, the more there's this race to the bottom effect and it's harder to capture value. He uses the example of the airlines where most airlines have to compete with each other to offer a very similar product instead of targeting a newer market or a differentiated market like the Google search market. So he learned from the smart calendar investment that 200 competing smart calendar products would mean there's a lot of competition and in the future he wants to minimize that competition. Meanwhile, Max Levchin, he caught up with his buddy Luke Nosek and he heard about these Silicon Valley exploits starting companies. Levchin decided to move out to Palo Alto, which was, as we said, the heart of Silicon Valley. He wanted to learn more about the world of entrepreneurship and technology. And it was in a really hot period in the Bay Area. And Levchin and his apartment didn't have AC. So he started attending lectures at Stanford just so he could benefit from the AC and get a little reprieve in the cool. That's where he stumbled upon one of Peter Thiel's seminars, and he was really interested in Thiel's unique perspective on financial markets. Thiel clearly thought differently from those who were trained in the financial markets because Thiel had such a different background, from philosophy to law school to minimizing competition and hedging your risk. He looked at the financial markets very differently. So Levchin approached Thiel after the lecture. They started talking and they hit it off. They decided to meet for breakfast the next morning and brainstorm potential business ideas. One of those ideas after meeting a few more times was this security encryption company that they called FieldLink. The goal of it was to store information on Palm Pilot devices, which were the handheld phones at the time. And Thiel was very impressed by Levshin's vision, by his technical experience coding since he was very young. So Thiel decided to invest in Levchin's company. This was what started FieldLink, which later became Confinity. So we've now established one leg of the two companies that eventually form PayPal. Over in Canada, our other hero, Elon Musk, was just beginning his career. So Elon Musk, when he was just 19 years old, he was interning at Nova Scotia Bank, and that's where he spotted this really multi-billion dollar arbitrage opportunity. 
The idea was to convert Latin America's bad debt into these tradable Brady bonds. Back then, there was a lot of foreign bad debt, and the U.S. government announced the Brady bonds, where you could trade foreign bad debt for Brady bonds. But most of his managers at the risk-averse banks rejected Musk's proposal. They decided it would be too risky to pursue this multi-billion-dollar arbitrage opportunity, and this rejection only accelerated Musk's belief that the banks don't know how to innovate. He said, "If they're this bad at innovation, then any company that enters the financial space should not fear that the banks will crush them, because the banks do not innovate." After this experience, and with An acceptance to Stanford Grad School in hand, Musk moved out to Palo Alto. He moved out to Silicon Valley, and instead of starting Stanford, he decided to defer grad school and teamed up with his brother Kimball Musk to start Zip2. Zip2 is Elon Musk's first company. It was this business directory and internet advertising provider for newspaper companies and some forms of media companies, and. Under Musk's leadership, Zip2 was able to quickly scale. It put him in this new position as a manager and a leader of other people at a very young age. Musk was still in his early twenties, and people talk about how his management style, even from the early years, had its flaws. Impatient and perpetually sleep deprived, he was prone to setting unreasonable deadlines, chewing out other executives and colleagues in the open. And retooling code written by other people without asking first, we've seen this tendency show up at his current companies like Tesla. He oftentimes sets these unreasonable deadlines and release schedules. We see at Twitter today how he's demanding engineers to deliver to him their best lines of code, and also forcing many engineers to rewrite their existing code. So we see from a very early age, Musk was developing these. Management styles that are going to stick with him for a long time. It's a very intense management style. After a few years of early success, Zip2 started facing a slowdown in ad sales. They weren't seeing as much business, and they had to lower their ambitions. They had other VC backers who had their own incentives. So these people started pushing for Zip2 to be sold. Musk had still a significant stake, but he wasn't the controlling shareholder. And the company was ultimately sold to Compaq, a big search provider, the Alta Vista search provider at the time, for three hundred seven million dollars, with Musk pocketing a twenty-one million dollar payday. At this super young age, Musk was able to walk away. Zip2, his first company, was sold, and he had twenty-one million dollars. This windfall it only fueled his desire to take these bigger, more ambitious challenges. As we know today, he's gone on to do just that. He's gone on to accomplish unbelievable feats. So Musk now, with this big twenty-one million dollar payday and the continued belief that the online banking space is ripe with opportunity, the old banks were slow and not tech savvy. Musk decided to found the company X.com to tackle this online banking and payment space. He would say X.com was techy, all right. And would defeat them by getting to market fast, lowering fees and minimums, and aggressively acquiring customers. To achieve their speedy go-to-market, the team opted to work with third-party vendors, 
using existing software that had been licensed to and approved by traditional banks, then building products on top of that code. So Musk was building this faster, better online internet and banking provider with X.com. And he felt like he had learned a few important lessons from his days with Zip2. One of the most important was this idea of ownership control and not being forced to sell in the future by his investors. So Sony also says his commitment to self-funding had two virtues. First, it gave Musk full ownership and operational control over X.com. This time, at least for now, there would be no investors to sideline him. Second, Musk's personal investment made for a winning recruitment pitch. He is showing to many other talented employees and engineers, you're competing on talent endlessly in this intangible economy. He's showing them that he has skin in the game. He's invested most of his $21 million payday into this new company, X.com, and he's not even willing to dilute that with other investors. He wants to keep full ownership, operational control, and show the talent how much he believes in this endeavor. So switching back to FieldLink with Max Levchin and Peter Thiel, it was in 1999 they had raised 500000 from VCs. Their mobile security startup for the Palm Pilots, FieldLink, was really starting to face tough competition, so they decided to pivot into the consumer space. Sony says, selling business-to-business -business mobile security was not working. Instead, the company would pivot to become consumer-facing. Confinity would launch a mobile wallet for handheld devices in an attempt to obsolete physical wallets. So this marks the time that Levchin and Teal, their company FieldLink, became Confinity, which was the consumer-facing company. They rebranded, they pivoted their entire business proposition, enabling a mobile wallet for handheld devices. And the core innovation that they were able to discover was devising this way to beam money from phone to phone. Imagine like a Venmo peer-to-peer -peer money transfer. So they were the first ones to beam money from phone to phone. And that innovation led to a big funding round from Nokia's venture capital arm, their corporate VC arm. They ended up raising $4.5 million for this money beaming technology and this idea to start pursuing the Confinity product instead of the original security field link product. As they were building out their beaming money idea, a new employee, David Sachs, was pushing for another product addition as well. He felt like this email transfer would be as valuable as the phone-to-phone -phone money beaming. Sony says, after all, few people would come into an interview guns blazing against their prospective employer's flagship product. This is when David Sachs was interviewing for a position at Confinity, and he came in and just told them the money beaming idea at the end of the day is not going to work because people may forget their Palm Pilot devices when they go out. But if we use this innovation of email transfer, payments over email transfer, that is much simpler because people can access their email from anywhere. So that was really David Sachs' first contributions to the company as he was just starting to interview and just joining the team. 
So now switching back to Elon Musk and his endeavor at X.com, in 1999, as the Confinity team was building out their email transfer and Palm Pilot beaming money idea, Elon Musk was starting to seek out venture capital for X.com. He preferred to self-fund the company, and he had up until that point, but he knew that the reputation of a top-tier VC firm would be important for the company, for recruiting and for gaining customers. So he set his sights on Michael Moritz of Sequoia Capital, the prestigious VC firm that we've discussed at length in the Power Law episodes. Musk pitched the Alipay vision to Michael Moritz, this vision of a combination of Bank of America, Schwab, Vanguard, Quicken, and it really resonated with Moritz, being able to be a one-stop shop for financial products, offer banking and investing, a mutual fund, many different products, insurance, all in one app. So that was Musk's original vision for X.com. And Musk said about recruiting Moritz that we didn't need the money. It was more the imprimatur of a top VC. With a convincing sales pitch from Musk, Sequoia decided to invest in X.com and the company was off to the races. X.com launched Thanksgiving weekend of 1999. They were offering this suite of financial products. They're aiming to combine those banking products with mutual fund or investing products. And they as well created an email transfer product. So X.com and Confinity were fighting over the email transfer product and they were quickly gaining thousands of users. They were even facing server troubles, server problems, because they were gaining users so quickly for their competitive email transfer products. One way in which X.com and Confinity did it right was by choosing email as the backbone of their platforms, riding a surging wave of adoption. So this began the fierce competitive dynamics that were occurring in the late 90s and early 2000s between X.com and Confinity. At the time, they were both pioneering this new form of marketing, viral marketing, using two-sided incentives to grow their user base quickly. So both companies were offering these cash bonuses to users who sign up for their product and a cash bonus for referring your friends, such as a $10 cash bonus or $20 cash bonus per each signup and referral. This led to a wildfire of adoption. They were basically handing out free money to people and their friends, and they rationalized this by saying that they're undercutting the high customer acquisition costs, the $100 to $200 customer acquisition costs that traditional banks had to face. Nevertheless, a lot of people joked at the time, they said, it's the largest transfer of venture capital to college students in history. The emergence of eBay as an online auction marketplace as well around this time played a really crucial role in the rise of both those email transfer products of x.com and Confinity. So eBay sellers, they began by accepting cash, checks, money orders, wire transfers, and an emerging group of online payments services, including PayPal, really developed the network effect within eBay. It allowed payments as a problem to be solved much quicker instead of needing to 
literally wait for a check to come to send your order, to send a product. Queries in eBay's search bar for x.com or PayPal showed that eBay's users adopted and advertised Confinity's PayPal and x.com enthusiastically, and for good reason. If an eBay seller sold an item and signed up the buyer for PayPal through the seller's referral link, the seller earned an extra $10. As a result, inexpensive sales became profitable. So this is that customer sign-up bonus, and many sellers would sign up the buyers while they're completing the transaction, doing the email transfer transaction, and that could turn what is a small profit margin or a negative profit margin into a very profitable margin. We're also seeing this competition for eBay's marketplace led to even more competitive dynamics between X.com and Confinity. Sony writes, X.com and Confinity spent the turn of the 21st century locked in a tense battle for customer growth. This contest consumed both companies from the end of 1999 through early 2000, driving employees and leaders to break and leaving lasting scars. They were both focusing on a very similar product, on the email payments product. They had established these viral marketing techniques like two-sided incentives and integrating with eBay's marketplace. So it led to these two companies coming much more head-to-head in competition And what Teal really fears, that lack of a monopoly, the nonstop competition where you keep battling back and forth for customer growth. You have to keep giving bigger and bigger incentives. It's this war of incentives to try to get more customers because the companies were realizing the power of the network effect. There were these natural network effects with eBay's marketplace, for one, and on an even bigger sense, for online payments. Ken Howery of Peter Thiel's hedge fund and later the Confinity team, he would say, network effects trump everything else. Each new telephone added to the network increased the value of every other telephone on it and grew the incentives for non-telephone owners to buy one. By the end of the 20th century, Confinity enjoyed the same fruits of scale the American Bell and Telephone Company had enjoyed at the century's dawn. Every eBay auction seller, excepting PayPal, enticed more buyers to sign up, and each new buyer paying with PayPal drove sellers to adopt it. Both the teams were starting to recognize these perilous effects of competition and really what they called widget war for customer acquisition for their competing email transfer, email payments products. Even Musk was saying it was kind of a race to see who could run out of money the fastest. And the Confinity team of Teal and Levchin, they were worried that Musk, especially with his Sequoia Capital backing, could simply outspend them. They could continue spending money until Confinity is out of resources, it's drained, and X.com would be left winning the whole market. This is an idea called winner-take-all markets, which are more prominent for network effect types of businesses, like these payments businesses or marketplace businesses. So around this time, X.com and Confinity were in these tense competitions, 
They were recruiting senior people to join the company. X.com had Bill Harris come as the new CEO. He was formerly the CEO of Intuit. And Confinity had Reid Hoffman join as COO of PayPal of the Confinity product. He later founded LinkedIn and a prominent VC connector within Silicon Valley. And all of these main characters across Confinity and X.com were starting to recognize the winner-take-all network effect dynamic and the fear of money simply running out for the loser. So slowly, the financial market was weakening. Both companies realized they have this big reliance on eBay, and that's not super sustainable. So members of Confinity, they first faced this tough decision, realizing they may run out of money first, and they don't want to be the loser in a winner-take-all market. They know that only one company is going to survive and become that monopoly, as Teal is always seeking out. At the same time, Bill Harris, the CEO of X.com, he was recognizing as well that competition, although they may be able to outspend Confinity, it would certainly destroy them. It would lead to a lot of wasted resources when instead they could just merge, become this single company and form in a monopoly around online payments in this email transfer product. So it was really Bill Harris. He sought out a meeting with Peter Thiel and Levchin, the original leaders of Confinity. And in this meeting, Elon Musk, they were sitting at this popular restaurant in Silicon Valley. He presented this offer to Thiel and Levchin that was basically a super lowball offer. He offered that X.com would acquire Confinity and the Confinity team would receive an 8% stake of the combined value in this new company. So he's basically saying that his company is worth 92% and they're worth 8%. And this is at the time, many of the Confinity members were shocked by this lowball offer. They're thinking, our product, yes, we may be out-resourced or outspended, but we still have a very competitive product. We're probably splitting the payments raise. So there's no way that the value should be prescribed as 8 to 92%. They kind of just waited. They started biding their time, letting the time pass. And Sony describes how, as PayPal's user numbers kept growing, the percentage offers from X.com kept climbing. They eventually settled on this almost equal merger. It was a 55 to 45% merger between X.com with the bigger stake and Confinity of Teal and Levchin's company with the 45% stake. And what happened next is really shocking. People will like listening to this story because we're hearing so much of the early days of Elon Musk, how he's thinking about management and motivation and deal making. So Musk, he was not really happy with this deal. He didn't like the deal. And he let his frustration slip out publicly. He's the one who originally offered that 92-8% split. So clearly, he didn't think this almost equal merger made sense. He thought that his company should just compete and beat out Confinity. But Bill Harris and most of the rest of the team thought that they should save their resources and become a single company. So he let this frustration slip out. Sony writes, Levchin was visiting the X.com office when Musk blurted out that Confinity was getting a fucking deal. 
My blood just boiled. And so I thought, it's off, Levchin remembered. If it's a partnership, it's a partnership. If you think I'm getting a steal, it's not going to work. Levchin called Teal, saying the deal was off. He didn't want to be treated as a charity case or as a junior partner. So this completely blew up the deal. You're seeing Musk is letting that frustration slip out. He's saying that this is a steal of a deal, a fucking deal. And at the same time, Levchin is there. He hears this. He's like, what the hell is going on? I'm not going to stand for this. If you think that our companies aren't that great, this is not going to last for a long time. If you think that you're getting ripped off in this merger and this acquisition, then it doesn't make sense. I'll just walk away. I don't need to be treated as this charity case. And Bill Harris, the CEO of X.com, he realizes the deal is getting blown up. He goes to meet with Levchin, with Max Levchin, and he tries saving the deal by now offering a 50-50 split. So it's now back to a fully equal merger. And he says, if I could do a 50-50 split, if I could get Musk on board, would you do this deal? And Levchin basically says, okay, fine. If it's an equal merger, I'm willing to do the deal. Now Harris, he had the tough job of convincing Musk. Is Musk going to be willing to do this when he clearly wasn't happy with a 55-45% merger and his original intention was very different? So I'm basically going to read the next page out of Jimmy Sony's The Founders because it's just so good. It's describing this culmination of emotions at the final point of the merger between X.com and Confinity. And it's how Bill Harris is trying to convince Elon Musk to accept the merger. So Sony writes, to this day, Harris is circumspect in speaking about what happened next. Musk is not. I was like, fuck you. We're just going to kill Confinity. If Confinity wasn't going to accept a junior partnership, that was their problem as far as he was concerned. It's like, okay, back to hack and slash on account growth, Musk said. Harris responded by dropping the bomb. He told Musk that absent a deal between the two companies, he would resign as X.com's CEO. Musk remembers saying, Bill, we need to raise a round, and you're basically putting a gun to my head and saying that if we do not do this deal, then basically the CEO of the company is departing, and we are literally raising a round right now. That's a very difficult situation. Like, this could kill the company. Harris stood firm, leaving Musk no choice but to concede. The reason I agreed to the 50-50 is because Bill Harris said he would resign if I didn't, Musk said. Otherwise, I was going to pass on the deal. From Harris's perspective, there was simply no other option. Would there have been a single winner? Yes, Harris remembers reasoning, but it would have taken a lot longer and a huge amount of resources to get there. And it's not at all clear which side would have won. To rationalize Harris's logic, he goes on to describe, to Harris, the merger wasn't just defensive. It was a strategic piece of offense. He cited Metcalf's law. Devised in the 1980s by Robert Metcalf, the inventor of the Ethernet, the basic idea was simple. The value of a network grows by the square of the size of the network. If a computer network contains five machines, the total network has a value of 25, 5 squared. If it has a thousand machines, the network has a value of a million, 1,000 squared. Per Metcalf, the bigger network has 200 times more machines, but its value is 40,000 times bigger. 
True for telephones, faxes, and the World Wide Web, Metcalf's law also applied to payments. Volume wins, Harris explained. Nobody wants to be on a payment system where there's no one to pay. And no one wants to be a recipient on a payment system where there's no one paying. And so it's all about getting size. Despite Musk's protestations, Harris felt merging was the only answer, even if it took an ultimatum to get it done. That is incredible. That shows Harris basically put this gun to Elon Musk's head, said, I will resign in the middle of our fundraising round if you don't accept this merger. And he had a very real rationale. I mean, the rationale is this is a winner-take-all market. It is, in some ways, a two-sided network effect because of the email transfer technology. And he realized that the bigger the market, the bigger the volume of payments, the more likely you're going to be the monopoly in that market. You're going to end up getting those winner-take-all dynamics. So he didn't want to keep wasting time and resources competing with Confinity, competing with them to the death or outspending them. He realized it just makes more sense to merge right now. Why are we fighting over this? As you can expect, this standoff wouldn't lead to a great relationship between Musk and Bill Harris after the merger. The merger still had a lot of complexities around it, especially considering, as Sony writes, the merger hadn't solved the fundamental problem, the new entity's combined burn rate. The joint company was on track to spend almost $25 million that quarter alone with salaries, bonus payments, credit card fees, and fraud tearing through its balance sheet. If we were standing on the roof of our building throwing wads of $100 bills over the side of the building, remarks Reed Hoffman, we'd be spending money less quickly. This was clearly a big problem for the merged company, PayPal. And because of this high burn rate, Peter Thiel was starting to recognize that they should raise money immediately. They should raise a new financing round as they're merging and they're completing the final merger because they have such a high burn rate. And he was really starting to fear the impending bust of the internet economy, the internet.com bust in the early 2000s. So as they merged, X.com and Confinity became the single company, PayPal, which was under the parent company X.com technically, but let's just call them PayPal from here on. They also announced a $100 million Series C round. And Sony describes many of those fears that Peter Thiel and some of the finance team members were feeling at the time. They would say, we have to close on this because the end is near. Peter kicked everyone's asses to get that funding round done. If we don't get this money raised, the whole company could blow up. He later talks about how th this was really perfect timing, their raise of the 100 million Series C round with their high burn rate in the merger, because right after is when the bubble burst. The timing was auspicious. Just days after X.com closed its round, U.S. public markets entered a downward slide that would ultimately wipe out $2.5 in market capitalization and sour the mood on technology stocks. Looking in hindsight, that $100 million round certainly saved them. If they didn't raise that round and the internet bust, we probably never would have heard of PayPal, certainly. It wouldn't be the company it is today. 
And unfortunately, we may never have even heard of all the other companies that PayPal entrepreneurs have gone on to found. I don't know if we'd have a Tesla or a SpaceX today without this critical $100 million Series C round. Save the company right before the dot-com bust. So we now have the merged PayPal company, and Bill Harris was the CEO of the new merged company. He took over as the former CEO of X.com. And over time, as they were now a merged company, it had all these characters under one roof with Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, David Sachs, in addition to Bill Harris and Elon Musk. Thiel started getting fairly frustrated with Bill Harris's moves leading the PayPal team. And eventually, he actually made the decision to resign from his vice president, executive vice president role in mid-2000. So some of these changes Harris was making, he was attempting to charge fees for payments. He wanted to stop the referral bonus program, that program that got such viral user additions on a quick basis. And that was not in line with Teal's vision of the company and how to manage the company. Teal's departure was really only the beginning of the drama at PayPal. As we already saw, Bill Harris put a gun to Elon Musk's head to get the merger agreed upon. Now, Teal is deciding to step down. He doesn't agree with Bill Harris. And when that happens, Musk and David Sachs, they are as well fed up with Bill Harris's leadership. And they decide to stage a coup and threaten to quit the company if Bill Harris isn't replaced. So they go to the board and they tell the board, listen, we agree with Peter Thiel. We don't think Harris is managing the company the right way, taking away these bonus programs and charging fees on payments. And we're going to quit as well. And now you're going to lose two thirds or half of your executive team over backing this career CEO, the former Intuit CEO. So the board recognized that they're not willing to lose two key executives. They've already lost Peter Thiel, so that would have been an even bigger hit. And they reluctantly agreed, and they placed Musk as the new CEO. So this is the first backstabbing that we're going to see. Musk and David Sachs go and threaten to quit unless Bill Harris is replaced and Musk takes over as the new CEO. This time, we should really point out, it marked the start of a new era for venture capitalists. We spoke about this a lot on the Power Law episodes, especially with Peter Thiel. It's this era categorized by a distrust for traditional executive experience, for those career managers or MBAs, and really a preference for founders, for the technical people who have the vision of the company. This is something that Teal thought of early on as being someone who founded companies himself. And later, it was even more so emphasized and urged on by firms like Andreessen Horowitz, who had dealt with poor experiences in their own founding companies. They were seen by their VCs as not career CEOs, and they were close to getting replaced out of their own company. And these shared experiences amongst Peter Teal and Mark Andreessen, especially Ben Horowitz. Ben Horowitz talks about this rough exchange with the benchmark partner, David Byrne, as he was running his cloud company, LoudCloud. David Byrne was questioning whether he could lead his own company. And he speaks about when he's discussing this time period in his life, 
He says, this is when we realize we want to be able to support technical founders. And we see that go on much further in the coming years, but this is really the start of it. Bill Harris had that executive experience. He was a past CEO at a much bigger company into it, and he was hired to be the hired gun at PayPal, whereas Peter Thiel or Elon Musk, they were the true founders. They understood what the company needed, and they were able to bring that vision, those innovations to the company. So the time that Musk spent as CEO was really marked by multiple different innovations within the company. He first realized that they needed to incentivize users to keep money on PayPal or at least use ACH as a payments rails because those were much cheaper than the high credit card rates. So up until this point, payments were free through PayPal. They weren't charging for their payments. They were promising that payments are always going to be free, but PayPal still had to pay the credit card providers for the interchange fees, like the 2%, usually it's around 2%. Each credit card payment costs the company 2% or more. The equivalent transaction through a user's bank account costs only a few cents. If more users link their bank accounts to PayPal, X.com would save millions and get a powerful leg up on Visa, MasterCard, and others. To do this, X.com would have to use a piece of banking infrastructure called the Automated Clearinghouse, or ACH. So that was one of the first big innovations in Elon Musk's era. It was this idea that we're paying such high fees for the credit card transfers, people opting to transfer money with credit cards, and they were starting to push people to either use a closed-loop transfer, which is you're sending money that you have already on your PayPal platform. It's like if you go on Venmo, and you have $50 in your Venmo account and you send it, you send $20 to your friend or use ACH, which connects directly to your bank account. So you don't have to pay those two to 3% high credit card fees. As they were trying to crack this ACH connection, one big issue was around security. One of the key employees who was trying to solve this problem, his name was Sanjay Bargava. He was working through the security problem and asking these bank accounts that I'm getting from customers, how do I know that the bank account they put is actually owned by that customer and they're not just putting someone else's bank account to withdraw money from? And his brilliant idea he thought of was this idea of random deposits, which has ended up becoming really a fundamental innovation in the online ACH banking and security payment rails. So Sony writes, specifically the company could manufacture four digit passcodes by sending two random deposits of under $1 to a user's bank account. If a user received 35 cents and seven cents, for example, they can now enter the code 3507 on the PayPal website. Entered successfully, the one-time code confirmed bank account access and without grainy faxes or snail mail checks. So before, if they wanted to connect ACH accounts with this verification, this security that the customer actually owns the account, they had to either fax confirmation numbers or actually mail information. And obviously, as you're scaling to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users, that would be way too arduous. 
And this idea of random deposits was really brilliant because it's super low cost. It's less than a dollar for the company, but it leads to guaranteed security for that customer and guaranteed really verification. In today's day, some companies now will simply use Plaid, which is a financial service that connects to many other accounts. It lets you connect your bank account to brokerages and different types of financial products. But before Plaid, and even to this day, some companies that don't use Plaid because they probably don't want to pay Plaid's economics, Plaid's fee, they will use this random deposit method. They will send you two payments of under a dollar, and that's how you're going to confirm that it's your bank account. On the product side, David Sachs was working to make the consumer process as simple and easy as possible. And in the view of David Sachs, every moment of friction was fat to be cut. Small time-saving improvements, he believed, led to stickier products and instant gratification won over impatient users. That idea has carried on in technology today where many people will talk about a product workflow and ask how many seconds it takes to get through that workflow. Sometimes if it takes seven steps or more than 10, 15 seconds, you could discourage a user from completing the sign-in process or completing their purchase. Especially this applies to purchases and payments because you'll notice if you go on Amazon and your payment is rejected once, then twice, that's maybe 10, 15 seconds, multiple steps. And at this point, you're just annoyed and you may end up walking away from that purchase. And for you, that may seem like a small thing, but for that company, that is a lot of lost revenue, especially if it happens a high amount of the time, failed payments or long workflow processes. So this was really one of David Sachs' big contributions to the team. He was constantly looking for ways to cut the friction. And as entrepreneurs, we want to think in the same way. How can we cut the friction in our business, make it as simple as possible for customers, and make that workflow very quick. So Musk was leading the company throughout the summer of 2000. They were making all these innovations, things that the company were really going pretty well. But by the fall of 2000, employees like Max Levchin were starting to really lose trust in Musk. He was trying to rewrite a large block of the code. He called it V2 of the code. He was wasting valuable resources that could have been spent on other things within the company, especially fighting fraud. That was a big problem with online payments at the time, fighting fraud or chatbots. And in addition, he was stubbornly sticking with his original brand, the X.com brand. He felt like he had a lot of pride behind that, whereas the PayPal brand had much more of a following and much more recognition. PayPal had millions of users, whereas the original X.com company only had hundreds of thousands. And he was refusing to let go of a few of these things to prioritize the PayPal brand over X.com, rewriting the code base. And especially, he had that original big financial services vision for X.com, where he would be pretty much a one-stop shop like Alipay. It would offer banking and mutual fund investments and insurance all under one roof. He was refusing to abandon this vision and just stick to 
the email payments product, even though that was the one that was gaining all the users. The original x.com product wasn't really gaining users. People weren't happy with it. So the team wasn't satisfied with Musk's leadership anymore. This is in the fall of 2000. They're realizing he's taking a lot of these missteps and they decide to take action. They're like, it's time to do the second coup. It's time to do another backstabbing. Sony writes, after failing to get Musk to abandon V2 and cease the X PayPal name change, they planned to deliver an ultimatum to the X.com board demanding his ouster under the threat of a mass resignation. So this is now the third time we've seen a mass resignation threat. First, Bill Harris did it to Musk to get the merger done. Then Musk and David Sachs did it to the board to fire Bill Harris. And now the rest of the exec team, like Levchin, are doing it to Musk. And what's the craziest part about this, you have to read the book. You really have to read the book for many reasons, but this part is crazy. They engineer this backstabbing coup while Musk is on his honeymoon. He had just gotten married. He goes on his honeymoon and they decide to have the board meeting literally as he's on the plane. So he cannot even respond if anyone calls him or tries to alert him of what's going on. That is mind blowing. It is crazy the internal politicking and dynamics that were going on in these PayPal years. And mind you, we've been speaking about 1999. Both of these companies, the original X.com and Confinity, were starting to ramp up in the payments landscape and offer that email transfer product. Right now, we're only in fall of 2000. So this whole time period of the online payments industry forming was very condensed and there was so much going on. There was so much rivalry and fighting for the winner-take-all market that people were kind of willing to do anything to secure that market. And that involved turning your back on your leaders or on the people that you built the company with. So Musk, after he finds out about this, there's nothing really he could do. The board sides with the other execs, because again, they can't face a massive layoff amongst their exec team. And what's really interesting at this time is that Musk showed a lot of restraint after they did this to him. You would think someone who had just gone on their honeymoon and faced a backstabbing like this, your co-founders or other peers, executive peers at the company decide to do a coup while you're literally on the flight to your honeymoon. I can't imagine what that feels like. But Musk, he didn't really hold a grudge against them. His loyalists at the company, some of the original X.com employees, they called him up and asked him like, hey, should we stay at the company? Do you want us to support you in solidarity and leave, just walk out? He was telling them, let's not shoot ourselves in the foot. You guys should stay, build a good company, don't worry about it. And eventually, he even ends up publicly praising Peter Thiel. So I think that's really impressive. We talk about Elon Musk a ton in the news today and the wild things that he does running his companies, especially the fun train wreck that we're able to witness with Twitter today. But I think that was an interesting 
view into his character, how he views the world. He seems like, obviously, it could be a personal hit, but he also viewed it as, I would only be shooting myself in the foot. And there's a lot of pride behind the PayPal X.com company. There's no reason I should just shoot them out of spite and hurt the people who I've spent so much time working with and building this great company with. So Musk, as we know, he was able to leave and, as Sony writes, return to his earliest passions, space exploration and electrical energy. Steve Jobs made Pixar great because he was fired by Apple, observed early X.com engineer Scott Alexander. Elon did SpaceX and made Tesla great because he was fired from X.com. And he even eventually raised $20 million from Peter Thiel's founders fund, the VC firm, that Thiel creates a few years down the road. So it shows how there was clearly tension at this time, and there was this second backstabbing coup at this point. Within the span of, I want to say, five months, another CEO is being kicked out of the company because of mass resignation. But Musk was able to get over it, and he was able to make sure the company still operates well despite his own stepping down from CEO. And he was able to mend those bridges with Peter Thiel, eventually accept funding for his SpaceX project from Founders Fund. In the meantime, there was now a vacancy for the CEO spot, and Michael Moritz, the Sequoia partner, named Peter Thiel as the interim CEO. He didn't name him as the outright CEO, and we notice again, this points back to that tension of how many of the old guard VC firms wanted to find an experienced executive. They wanted to find someone who was a career CEO or an MBA type. And Moritz did the same thing with Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel clearly had a lot of experience. He founded one of the companies. He had run a hedge fund before. But this created a little bit of a divide between them because it seemed like he was spurning Peter Thiel of the true CEO role. Now, as they were doing an executive search, Peter Thiel was the interim CEO. They were carrying out an executive search. The PayPal team had very high expectations. They wanted someone who was both technical and loved puzzles, but could also understand the vision of the business and some of the product innovations they've made so far. Eventually, they met this great candidate, David Solo, who, after many interviews and getting to know the team, he ended up just endorsing Peter Thiel as the real CEO. And that was really the final straw for the board to say, okay, I think we should pick Peter Thiel. If our best candidate is saying Peter Thiel's the guy for the job, then it seems like he's the guy for the job. Unfortunately, that rift between Moritz and Thiel had already formed. Sony writes, it created a rift between him and Sequoia's Mike Moritz, which never fully healed and it reinforced PayPal's allergy toward executive experience. Thiel really continued that trend of promoting internally within the team by putting Reed Hoffman as the COO of the company, David Sachs became the VP of strategy, and Roloff Botha became their new CFO. So Roloff Botha is a legend in the VC world today, He's the current steward of Sequoia. He's one of the leaders of Sequoia Capital. And he joined X.com originally part-time in mid-2000. 
He brought with him an actuarial sciences background. He had this desire to provide accurate financial analysis to the company and to their decision-making. And he quickly became a full-time team member because of his sharp expertise. As he dived deeper into the company's finances, he started to notice something that was really a huge issue. He was recognizing that chargebacks were being delayed by months, and that would lead to a huge cash crunch in the future. Now, what is a chargeback? This is a form of fraud. It was their most important problem at the time, and it's where professional criminals will devise these shell companies and, as Sony puts it, duped unsuspecting buyers into purchasing phony goods, then pocketed the money without sending anything. And that will lead to customer disputes. The customers will call and say, this purchase was fraud. I never received anything. It's from this professional criminal that duped them into buying something. That is what the chargeback fundamentally is. It's the customers disputing a fraudulent purchase. And it ends up with PayPal needing to bear the expense. So those chargebacks were months delayed. They thought that the company was running fairly well, but they realized that as their business is scaling, the chargebacks are growing, but they're not going to see that hit until a few months later. And that means either they have to raise a lot more money now, or they have to solve this problem of fraud immediately. And Levchin was put on the fraud task right away. One of the things he did that I think was really funny was he wanted to understand the psychology and the methods behind these fraudsters. So he would actually enter their chat rooms and even speak with them on the phone. He would call them up directly, the fraudsters. Some of them were in Russia or in his home country, Ukraine. And he would speak to them directly, trying to get their secrets revealed. In addition to these professional criminals who were doing these shell companies, duping customers, into buying phony goods and leading to chargebacks. Another big fraud issue that PayPal was dealing with was computer bots who were taking advantage of the bonuses at a rapid pace. They would set out bots to just open accounts or refer friends, and they would get all this bonus money and then transfer the money. So PayPal created the first really implementation at scale. It existed before, but PayPal's the first one to use it at scale for their product of the CAPTCHA tests. It's those tests that you see you have to choose which images represent a lion, for example, or you may have to type in what are the letters and the numbers into a test to prove that you're a human. And this is a public test that PayPal started implementing on their own accounts, on their payments accounts, to force users to prove that they're human. And that quickly dealt with much of the computer bots issue. Now, the fraudsters, the criminal fraudsters, that was a more complicated issue because you're dealing with humans who can adjust to some of the techniques that you set in place. So PayPal, one of the biggest revolutions in their fraud fighting ability was using some of the first machine learning tools, these predictive fraud tools to identify past fraud behaviors. They would use math and pattern recognition to spot old fraudulent behavior, and that's how they would mark certain red flags, identify red flags that fraudsters would fall into. And then when they see similar events happening in the future, the system is able to 
either shut out that account or notify someone within the PayPal team to look into if that account or situation is fraud or if it's not. They named this machine learning tool Igor, and that was named after one of their main enemy fraudsters. They were showing how they finally beat these fraudsters by combining some of the CAPTCHA tools, getting rid of the computer bots, in addition to using Levchin's secretive methods of understanding their psychology and then putting together these machine learning predictive tools to identify some of the old fraud behavior and spotting the future red flags that pop up. With these tools in place, X.com was able to stay one step ahead of these criminals and really start protecting their customers. This quickly helped the fraud issue and it led to much less chargebacks, much less bonuses being spread across bots and saved a lot of the company as well. Some of these contributions that Roloff Botha made to PayPal was first spotting the fraud and then being able to incrementally push down the chargeback and fraud expenses. With fraud in check, Peter Thiel now wanted to start pushing for real revenue. Up until this point, they had offered most of the payments product for free. So they realized they can't keep raising money forever. They have to start actually making some money. And they were starting to think about how can we charge people that it wouldn't be hurting the customer experience too much. In September of 2000 was when they started to upsell certain accounts that were using PayPal for their business into a paid account. Obviously, people who were using PayPal for their business, they were used to the free transfers and they were not very happy when PayPal came to them and said, hey, now you have to pay for this. You have to upgrade into our business account and pay for our transactions. Sony writes how people said, we refused to pay and they left and there's no other place that they could get paid online. So they came back. For the team, this episode offered a vital lesson in user behavior and switching costs. They realized that once embedded in users' lives, dislodging a product or service took meaningful effort. So at this point, they were very ingrained in those businesses' workflows. They had processed probably many payments, especially on the eBay platform, I would imagine, for some of these online sellers. And the companies didn't really have anywhere else to go. It's these ideas of businesses that are the operating system, they're mission critical for the business. And yes, they may not want to pay, but as long as it's not too high of an expense basis and there's nowhere else to go, you have this local monopoly as Teal is always searching for, then people can complain about this small price hike, but there's nothing really for them to do. They have to pay it because it's critical for their business to get paid online and to make it possible so that they could sell all these products on these online auction sites. Eventually, they rolled out their forced upgrade campaign. They called it their FU campaign. And you could imagine what else that stands for. And the forced upgrade campaign was meant to impose a $500 personal limit on credit card transactions with PayPal users who go past that amount either being forced to upgrade to the business account so they could accept the payment. They're saying above a $500 transfer is considered a business payment. So 
you would have to pay the actual fee on that. Or you could send back the money and request to the other side of the transaction that it gets sent through the cheaper ACH or PayPal balance transfer method. So with this stroke, PayPal in their forced upgrade campaign is trying to deal with their two biggest problems, one of which was those credit card transactions, which as we know, carried high fees. They were high expenses for the company. And with that, they're trying to push on the ACH or PayPal balance transfer, which is much cheaper. It costs a few cents per transaction. And at the same time, they're trying to build somewhat of a sustainable business. They were forcing the users who do these big transfers and receive a lot of email transfers through their PayPal product to actually start paying for using the products because eventually the company has to make some money. We see that within a single month of the campaign's late October launch, 95% of targeted personal accounts had upgraded to either business or premier status. This proved a critical piece of PayPal's leap to a full-fledged business and a stark end to the always free promise that had launched Confinity's PayPal into the world. They had a 95% success rate with this forced upgrade campaign, and it got many of those personal accounts that were using the products for effectively their small business, their auctions or marketplace trinket business at home to actually start paying for the product. They started getting some real revenue traction and reducing some of their expenses on the credit card transaction fee side. So PayPal has now established some real revenue. A full-fledged business is taking place. They've reduced a lot of their fraud, and they were really now hitting the ground running post-merger. Carrying into the 2001 period, they started to realize the difficult position they're in of being so dependent on the eBay auctions platform. The company's revenues almost fully came from those eBay auctions sellers. So a lot of the competitive dynamics that were taking place was surrounding how PayPal was coming onto eBay's home turf and establishing their payments product as the main payments product for sellers, whereas eBay actually owned its own payments company internally. They owned a company called Billpoint, which was known as an inferior product, but still eBay would take these really unfavorable and anti-competitive tactics to preference BillPay over the PayPal payments product. One of the things they did in this 2001, late 2000 period was changing the default payment option on the seller's checkout pages to their own company, to Billpoint, in order to gain some market share. At this point, they'd fallen behind in market share, and this default change almost overnight increased the market share from five to 10%. It's that idea of nudges. If you set something as the default, many people may not even think about it. They're just gonna continue with the default. Now, PayPal was very worried. They're seeing that so much of our business is dependent on eBay, were in danger because they have their own internal payments company, Billpoint, that it may be inferior, but they're going to try supplanting them either which way. They're going to use these illicit tactics to put their own products ahead on the stack. And PayPal started 
voicing some of these concerns to the community, especially to the sellers who now really trusted the PayPal brand and felt like PayPal is clearly the best payments company. After this default switch happened, the community started to revolt. They were posting on different forums how they're having all these types of troubles with competing their bill point payments. And that was obviously leading to lost sales opportunities. So the community revolted against eBay and that really allowed PayPal to retain its position as the dominant player in the market. And it forced eBay to recognize that bill point may never be the payments provider that they hope it to be. This probably was the first step to eBay realizing we may have to acquire this company because for much of this time, they were likely thinking, we want to kill this company. We want our own solution that we have control over to facilitate the payments. We don't want a third-party provider having control over our own platform. But now, with the community so strongly behind the PayPal brand, eBay realized that that's the superior product and they can't use these tactics to just put their own products as the default. As PayPal was able to get past this big eBay and Billpoint threat, they started thinking about going public. They were realizing now that they have some revenues coming in. It's not just a VC money-raising business anymore. And they have a strong market-leading business. It's about the time to go public with some of the operating leverage that PayPal is benefiting from. Teal describes this operating leverage before the IPO. He says, we have high fixed costs, low variable costs, and high variable revenues. The more payments flow through the PayPal network, the more profitable the company becomes. We spoke about the importance of operating leverage on the second episode of the Power Law series. We were discussing the increasing returns to scale concept. It's these businesses that have very high fixed costs. You could think of a software business. It costs a lot of money to hire the engineers and build the product like a Facebook product. But once that's all built, you could scale that to billions of users at a very low variable cost. You've spent the upfront money to build the product, the software like the social network, or in this case, PayPal's payment product with fraud detection and revenue generating opportunities now, but there wasn't a high variable cost anymore. These companies don't need to increase their costs to produce more sales. Teal clearly saw that this was a big strength that PayPal had. It had already at this point become really the monopoly in the online payment space. There were other competitors, but they were not nearly as big. They had this inherent operating leverage in the network effects of being the biggest payment provider. They had beaten their competitor bill point in the platform race on eBay, and they had combined in their merger of the two original competing companies, X.com and Confinity, to form the real juggernaut in this space. So Teal felt like they were now ready to go public. This was in early 2002 that he was starting to push for the company to go public. As they were trying to go public, they had to deal with many companies really come out of the woodwork, try to serve them 
lawsuits get a quick buck. And that delayed the IPO process a bit. But eventually, PayPal was able to go public, marking this really culmination of all the hard work that the team had faced, the backstabbing and merger complexities, fraud and revenue generating initiatives that they took over the last three years to fend off competition and deal with the internal dynamics within the company and become the winner in this online payments winner-take-all market. As the summer of 2002 rolled around, they went public in the spring. And as summer was rolling around, Jeff Jordan, he was working at eBay at the time, he was recognizing how big PayPal could really become. He felt like PayPal could even surpass eBay over time because its payment network effect could grow significantly once it got past the eBay auction platform, once it provided payment infrastructure for all types of internet businesses. And he felt like their inherent fraud prevention technology was highly valuable as well. At the same time, the PayPal founding team was really ready to walk away at this point. They had gone through three years of first intense battling and then resignations or at least threats of resignations and all these tense competitive dynamics with eBay specifically being the owner of the Billpoint competing product. So both parties kind of felt like it would make sense to reach an agreement and to sell to eBay. PayPal was realizing that much of their business comes from eBay, so that would probably be the biggest outcome for them. I think the founders weren't really willing to stay for a long time and build it into the PayPal that it's eventually become now today. And at the same time, eBay's Jeff Jordan was starting to see this massive potential that PayPal could grow into. So they agreed that eBay would acquire PayPal this acquisition was $1.4 billion, so a very big acquisition at the time. And this is right after the dot-com bust. This is in 2002, so it's still not a great period for technology companies, but this is clearly a great sign that PayPal's being acquired for over a billion dollars. And it was really this historic moment. It was these two massive players in the tech industry, especially the auction marketplaces, facilitating online payments and online auctions, coming together to form this individual strong company. So that marks the end of the PayPal founding story. This is the bulk of what Jimmy Sony covers in his excellent book, The Founders. And I highly, highly encourage everyone to read the book itself. You could clearly see there were so many interesting pieces from the early innings of the online payments industry to some of these backstabbing and drama events happening at PayPal, the internal politicking within the employees. It's a super fascinating story, very well researched. I believe Jimmy Sony spent five years researching this, which is even longer than the PayPal story spans for between starting and eventual eBay acquisition. He interviewed hundreds of different original employees to write the book and to create this comprehensive narrative. And he does an amazing job at representing all the key lessons and takeaways from those entrepreneurs' early journeys. 
To quickly speed us up to present day PayPal, I'll just describe some of the final events after the eBay acquisition. They get acquired by eBay, taken in to the company. Jeff Jordan was one of the instrumental people for that acquisition. Over the next 10 years, from 2002 to about 2013, PayPal eventually surpassed 100 million users. And by that point, they were half of eBay's revenue. So they made up this significant stake within eBay. And Carl Icahn came to the table, took a significant stake in eBay, and began to push it to spin off PayPal. So they ended up spinning off the company in 2015. It took a couple years for this value-creating move to take place. And now PayPal is an even bigger company than eBay itself. PayPal is now, I believe, around a 90 or $100 billion company, whereas eBay isn't as big as the current day PayPal. PayPal has been able to expand into many other payment services on the internet outside of just the eBay marketplace. What's more important is really these entrepreneurs and founders behind the PayPal story. We've spoken about so many of them today. There's the very well-known ones like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and Max Levchin as well. And there's many of the other ones that people may not know as well, but clearly played very pivotal roles in the founding, like David Sachs with many of his contributions around low friction or around really prioritizing the core email transfer product instead of beaming money technology on the Palm Pilots. Roloff Botha brought his actuarial background and discovered some of the chargebacks that were going on. So there were many key members, and Sony writes how, above all, PayPal proved to its founders that talented outsiders could upend an industry, something they've replicated in everything from professional social networking to government contracting to infrastructure. And he's referring to how PayPal's founding members, what many call the PayPal mafia, have gone on to form companies like Tesla and SpaceX, Palantir, Affirm, the Buy Now Pay Later company, LinkedIn, YouTube, Yelp, Founders Fund. All these massive companies have come from these outsiders who simply came together and had this original payments vision around PayPal. It makes us all wonder, what was in the water at PayPal? How was it that so many of these talented people were able to come out of the PayPal story? Now, I have a little surprise coming up on the next episode that I hope will help us find the answer to that question. So until then, go out, buy the book, go grab a copy of The Founders and lean into this founding story of PayPal. Learn about the crazy stories of the early careers behind Musk and Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, and many of the famous entrepreneurs that formed the defining company that many of us use to this day. I hope you guys learned a lot and enjoyed this episode. Please share it with a friend if you think they'd like it. I'm excited to continue on the journey and thanks again for listening.